how do you push the boundaries? You push them. I mean, there's no way to dive into it but to dive into it. This is Diving Board, a show about artists, the art they create, and the wide range of social and cultural ideas they explore. I'm Bill Valerio, and I run the Woodmere Art Museum, where we tell the stories of Philadelphia's art and artists. And I'm Stephanie Marutis of Kuvenda Media, where we produce narratives for social change. You cannot be concerned with what the reaction is going to be. I'm like, hey, if I'm going to censor myself, then forget it. That's my friend Ursula Rucker. She's an artist, poet, and activist in Philadelphia, and was one of the first people we interviewed for Diving Board when we launched in 2017. People been writing poems to tell their stories and record history and do everything since the beginning of time. And as our country confronts the latest demonstrations against the murder of George Floyd, racism, police brutality, and structural inequalities, we find ourselves coming back to Ursula's words about the power of speaking up, making art, and creating social change. Poetry is so big, and I like being part of that ancient, big, full of possibilities thing. Don't make me small. (laughs) I am not small. (laughs) More than ever, many in our country are stepping up and raising their voices in solidarity to speak out against injustice. And here at Woodmere and at Convenda Media, we believe this urgent conversation needs to be had and the museum and its art is a platform for the dialogue, creative energy, and activation of the voices of artists. At the same time, it's abundantly clear that we have a long road ahead with regard to pressing matters of racial justice. So we're asking ourselves and asking our community, what is our role in this? To start, we feel strongly that the arts can play a key role in creating spaces to grapple with these major social and cultural shifts currently taking shape around us. The arts can also help us find peace, beauty, and healing. And that's why we've decided to repurpose our podcast as part of a new initiative called Diving Board 2020. We hope that the podcast can create a venue for meaningful conversations and reflections about where we've been, where we are now, and where we're headed. Some people think that the golden age is, is past, and, uh, but there are those who believe that the golden age is the age toward which we approach, and I think that's much more helpful. Have any of you thought of the golden age as all in the past? I wish you'd answer my questions. I'd like to talk with you, not to you. Well, we're coming to the golden age, and I think that's more cheerful. Those are the words of Violet Oakley. She was one of the most important women in American art from the late 19th century to the early 1960s, and was a social changemaker who championed racial and gender equality. It was Violet, after all, who inspired us in the first place to create Diving Board. And since we rolled out our podcast several years ago in the context of an exhibition of her work, we've heard from many individuals, including artists, 
and forward-looking thinkers from across the spectrum of humanistic activity about the subject of art and race and the need for equality. We're going to be reaching out to many of those people again to join us as part of our Diving Board 2020 initiative. We will be asking them to share their latest reflections and explore with us questions around what is broken in our social contract, what has changed between when we last spoke and now, what has remained the same, and when social justice is the only path forward, how do we get there as individuals and together as a society? So as we set out to record these conversations and produce new episodes, we're going to spend the rest of this episode hearing from various artists who've shared their reflections with us on Diving Board over the past several years. We're going to start with master watercolorist and renowned illustrator Jerry Pinckney. Art is created out of this full range of experiences as well as the lack of experiences. In other words, you create your own. You use your imagination to explore or, or to see the world. Jerry is a member of the family at Woodmere, and we have shown his work many times, including in an exhibition of 2019 called Freedom's Journal. Many of Pinckney's images confront the painful history of slavery and raise questions about the condition and meaning of freedom. Here, Jerry describes his experience growing up in Philadelphia's Germantown neighborhood and studying commercial art in high school. All of my neighbors and homeowners had migrated from the South. It was an all-black block, which we'll see. And then surrounded was a Jewish and Italian communities. And we got along fine, by the way, but there was no socialization at all. But my view of Germantown was a very limited. We had our own universe. And in that time, you had to cross other neighborhoods to get to a swimming pool or something like that. So we didn't venture out. Our, again, universe was Earlham Street. So my experience with Germantown is still limited, as was my experiences to Philadelphia. Um, I went to an all-black elementary school. Was that out in Germantown? That was in Germantown Hill School. But that was, I think, that was also a matter of choice, that my parents felt that, in many ways, we were going to get the best education. And then my two younger sisters went to a black and white um, integrated school. But my parents, for myself and two older brothers and older sister, felt in some way that school was right. And it did. I think a certain amount of self-esteem was garnered there because you had black teachers teaching. So we were introduced to professional people at that point. I don't think we knew about it and was aware of it until we became adults. But we were surrounded by professional African-Americans. In the choice of Dobbins Vocational School, and I chose commercial art, it had a lot to do with my ability to draw and, and to make images, but it also gave me a way of dodging uh, high schools that would have perhaps been more loaded into a liberal arts 
So I knew that at the time that I could survive, not knowing, by the way, about dyslexia, but knowing the difficulties and the struggles I was having in certain areas, I didn't see how I could really survive in a regular liberal arts high school. So I chose Dobbins Vocational School and studied commercial art. Um, And then Dobbins, the Board of Education at that time, offered three scholarships to high school students to art schools. And I'm not sure whether it was just for the Philadelphia Museum School or whether there were other art schools. But anyway, there were three scholarships offered. My teacher at the time, the art teacher, only handed out you know, applications to the white students. And he was extremely fair, and I liked him. His attitude was that he felt he was being more helpful to say to black students, and by the way, I've met uh, art students, you know, that were in classes ahead of me who talked about that was the turning point where they turned away from making art. Um, I always felt, you know, I, I say it at times that I didn't really get it. I didn't understand what he, his message was. I actually loved it because he would give out A with wings. <laughs> and I had more A with wings, so I was one of his top students. I didn't quite understand what the message was. And so I went down to the, uh, the counselor's office or the advisor's office and got applications for myself and the other black students and gave them out. Um, that year, as I said, there were three scholarships, and two of the scholarships went to Dobbins one to myself and one to my friend Warren, who is also of color. As part of our Freedom's Journal exhibition of Jerry Pinckney's work, we dove into the illustrations he created for two books, The Old African and Minty, A Story of Young Harriet Tubman, books that bring to life the terrible historic facts of the transatlantic slave trade and put a human face on the brutality that enslaved Africans endured. As part of the exhibition, we created unique video storytelling experiences around Minty and the Old African with my friends and colleagues, jazz musician and composer Warren Ori, and singer and actor Suzanne Burgess, who performed the dramatic readings. I encourage you to go to Woodmere's website and watch the video jazz performance of Minty and the Old African, which you can find either under the tab for Teaching Resources or under the tab for Past Exhibition, Freedom's Journal. Here's what Suzanne had to say about Jerry Pinkney's art and the importance of the story of Minty. I believe, in fact, that it is all one and the same, but this particular grouping of illustrations and storytelling of the black experience, both getting to, you know, the during and the after is very, very uh, intense and special. It is, in fact, there are some topics and just some verbiage there that is very, very acidic. And to try to express that through narration, accompanied with, you know, Warren's brain, of being so loose and being so free with it, I think that it makes it, I hate to use the word palatable for people to understand it, but I think that it does that. I think the way that he allows the music to flow in and out of and in between the words 
and just giving it a chance to breathe, I think it's easy for a child to understand and it softens the blow, but hits where it needs to for the adult heart and mind. She listened to what Saunders had to say. Minty never got a chance to speak for herself. Whip her, said Mrs. Broadus. Whip her good. And if it happens one more time, you tell my husband here, we'll sell her down south. They'll know what to do with her, with her in Georgia. The overseer tied Minty to the fence. Then roughly, he ripped open the back of her shirt. <laughs> I think everybody's able to get it this way. And I think that it's important if we can't have healthy dialogues about this very sensitive topic, and especially right now, this is just a very, very human way to teach because that's what this is about. He's able to teach us through his illustrations exactly what was happening, you know, exactly what they were feeling, exactly what they were you know, hoping for, and then to have that music come in and swell behind it, and it's just an experience, and I think it's necessary. I really do. I think black history should be taught all year round. I don't think it should just be a couple months, you know, a couple weeks. This is something that everyone has to own up to. So now we have to take this allow those that have had these atrocities happen within our histories, our legacies. Um, let them be what they are, but let those people tell those stories. And don't lessen them because they're painful. There's something to be said about pain. There's growth. Because eventually, you know, you always have the scars. And scars make you remember. We're now going to turn back to the 2018 Woodmere Annual, which is the museum's annual juried exhibition of Philadelphia's contemporary artists. Woodmere has been doing the annual since the 1940s, and it's one of the ways the institution rolls up its sleeves and explores what's happening in our city's vibrant art scene. Sid Carpenter, who's a sculptor and professor of studio art at Swarthmore College, selected the art for the exhibition and organized the show. One of the pieces Sid chose came from photographer James Morton. It's called American Dream, made in 2017. And you can see it on page 19 of the show's digital catalog, the 77th Woodmere Annual, which, again, you can find under the Past Exhibitions tab on Woodmere's website. We're going to hear first now from James about American Dream and then Sid's response to it. My stuff comes from inside, and it's visceral, and it's about feeling, and the image kept poking at me. And actually, I carried it around for about a year in the back of my head. That particular image, American Dream, is painful. It's not pleasant. It's not pretty. It's not supposed to be pretty. And that's what that piece is. It's actually a nightmare. It's kind of what I see when I have bad dreams. The darkness and... There's a male figure, but he's not woke. His eyes are closed. There's a body count 
because I believe that this nation that we talk about being number one is actually founded on bodies, on Native Americans and Africans and all of those people who were killed to uh, make this uh, supposed to be great country that we talk about. So it's a nightmare and it's reflective of what I think America really is. That symbol of the E Pluribus Unum, that's a promise. But at the same time, it has turned out to be a lie. And so in looking at the gesture of the young man, looking down and seeing the evidence of the lie in terms of the skulls, the whole thing that to me expresses a certain kind of sorrow, bitterness, and questioning at the same time of the fact that you have the flag on one side and the figure on the other and the skulls in the middle separating them and, of course, the deterioration of the whole thing. There's probably a sequence of images that would come out of of this. It would be difficult to make a singular image that it is expressive of the many, many different problematic issues that are raised by juxtaposing a black male figure against the American flag. I mean, throughout history, the contradictions, the betrayals are so evident between the flag and the black male body. So anyone looking at it is going to be aware of a sense of trauma, a sense of betrayal, a sense of all of these different contradictions. And there's a certain weariness that this piece evokes. There's a dimness to it. The flag itself is contorted. So there's all of these powerful messages coming off of this image. I think that it's timely that this image shows up when they've just opened the museum in Montgomery, Alabama to commemorate and acknowledge lynchings in this country, primarily of black males, but of children and women as well. So it's just, for me, seeing this image at this time, it, it's, it's lining up. There seems to be a kind of synergy around acknowledgement now that I think is going to be uh, redemptive. It's important that images like these be out there as much discomfort and maybe resentment and outrage as it may cause you know, and I think artists are acknowledging it, that the conversation can begin with art making, that we can begin there. That it's a place, you know, coming to a museum and having those kinds of observations as opposed to going to Facebook or going to a newspaper or hearing Fox News or something. You come to a museum and have these kinds of truths presented to you in the form of art. And finally, we're going to hear now from dancer Karen Warrington. She was the lead dancer at the former Ile Ife Black Humanitarian Center on Germantown Avenue, which is now the Village of Arts and Humanities. We spoke with Karen as part of our exhibition, Africa in the Arts of Philadelphia, which is about the work of Barbara Bullock, Charles Searles, and Twins 7-7. The exhibition is up until September 7th of this year. We will reopen the museum when Philadelphia goes into the green phase, and we hope to be able to welcome you into the exhibition itself sometime soon. 
For now, there is a great deal of material, including several related episodes of the Diving Board podcast and a digital catalog on the current exhibitions tab of our website, woodmereartmuseum.org. As I just mentioned, we're going to close with Karen's words, but I hope you will subscribe and come back to our Diving Board 2020 episodes as they evolve. We hope to be hearing more from Karen, Sid, James, Suzanne, Ursula, and Jerry, and from many others whose thoughts and artistry we need now more than ever. Here is what Karen had to say about the broader social context of Africa in the arts of Philadelphia. We came here as Africans, but we had to tamp down so much of our culture and our first inclinations because we were trying and being made to fit into European molds. And I think we were able to break the mold on so many levels as it relates to art. And not only art, Eddie Leife, but just in your own personhood. Because those young people that came through the doors of Eleife, they knew that they were treasured. They knew that they were appreciated. They knew that they looked just like the people who were in charge. And so often when young black children come into these institutions, they don't look like the heads of the institution, they're not welcomed, and they know instantly they're not valued. So when a child comes in and finds out that he or she is valued, and they start to discover that they have talent that they didn't know about. Maybe they had never picked up a paintbrush. Maybe they had never touched a piece of clay. Maybe they had never were at a bar. Maybe they, when I say bar, a dance bar. (laughs) (laughs) They never had ballet shoes. And they got a chance to experiment with their bodies. And that freed not only their bodies, but their minds, their soul. And I think it gave them confidence to go out into the world. Art museums have been very dishonest on a lot of levels. On one level, they will periodically celebrate African art, but they don't connect African art to African people and African presence. They separate Africa and the art from the Africans who were right in their midst. And so until we start having museums that are more inclusive, that provide voice and provide a point of view having to do with the persistence of the culture of Africans that is here and now in America, I don't think museums will properly reflect not only America, but the African diaspora. So when we have young black children come into museums, I'm sure they want to see something that they can relate to, just like any young European child wants to see something they can relate to. And without those images, it means that the museum might not have the same resonance. So if we really want to tell the story of art, we're going to have to make it much more inclusive. We're going to have to say that everybody 
doesn't paint in pastels, that everybody doesn't do landscapes, that so much of what we consider modern art is really based on some of the realistic design we see in African art. So let's have a dialogue. Let's really talk about it. But what has happened in these institutions that give degrees they're not having a conversation about how wide the subject of art really is. So therefore, the voices of the people who represent art from Africa or from the diaspora are not included. Therefore, they're not considered the experts in their the field that they know most about. So until we really say, I wanna hear the voice of the people who understand, who are part of this process, who come from this part of the world, we're really not gonna have an honest discussion. So I would say to all art administrators, get some people of color, have some serious conversations about how art has survived, been changed, been shaped, has evolved, and remains in the black community, but is often ignored. And I think it would be important for all of us, especially as we look at America in this time of great division, that I believe the artist has the ability to possibly soothe some of those wounds and abrasions and disconnects that we have. And I think that's why I've always appreciated that I was exposed to art at an early age because that meant that I was free of so many of the hangups that so many of us have and have been taught to have in America. Um, art jumps over politics. Art jumps over class. Art jumps over income level. Art jumps over color. So maybe the uh, people who run these institutions, after they see what is happening in this space at Woodmere, they'll be more inclined to say, well, let's take a second look and let's see how we can open up this discussion and really truly define all the tentacles of art, especially as it relates to the African and the African-American experience. <laughs>